This is Winter is Here, a podcast where we discuss how we arrived at the global battle between tyranny and democracy, and more importantly, how we can win. I'm your host, Uriel Epstein, Executive Director of the Renew Democracy Initiative, and I'm joined today by Laure Manzaville, Senior Reporter at Le Figaro, former Bureau Chief in Moscow and in Washington. And on Le Figaro, she has a weekly page on intellectual debates around the world, and now she has a new book out, Les Révoltés d'Occident, The Insurgents of the West, From Trump to Zemmour. She is also the founder of the Tocqueville Conversations on the Future of Democracy, where actually we met just under a year ago. So thank you, Laura, so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's nice to hear you, Ariel, and thank you for inviting me. Of course. So about a week ago, we had elections in France where Macron, the centrist candidate, ended up coming out ahead with a relatively commanding 58% compared to the far-right challenger, Marine Le Pen, who had, I believe, 41%. Laura, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about the dynamics of that race. Yes. What I would like to say is, as you said, you know, the score of Emmanuel Macron is pretty impressive. It's 58% to 41% for Marine Le Pen, who is the representative, you know, of the far-right party uh, Rassemblement National. But one has to say that this victory, which seems impressive, is in fact more like a pious victory. And it happens in an extremely difficult, volatile political context in France. I would say Emmanuel Macron keeps a very fragile political position in what I would call a revolutionary time in France with a very fragmented political landscape. And one has to notice that he got, you know, 18 million, a bit more than 18 million votes in 2022. And that means two millions less than in 2017. So he did not increase his rating, you know, his support in France, unlike, for instance, Trump, who lost the race to Biden, but increased mm. the number of, of voters by 11 million people in the US. Mm. And Marine Le Pen, on the contrary, she lost indeed, she got 41%, but for a party which has the reputation of being a, a far-right party, despite the fact that now it has evolved and it's more, I would say, nationalist, actually, party and the representative of the national right, she got 2.6 million more than she did you know, in 2017, which is not insignificant as a result. And she actually coined her loss as a victory. So, so the trend line, in other words, appears to have gone decidedly against Macron. But it's worth noting that in the Fifth Republic in France, I don't believe that there's been any other president who's had more than one term. Is that yes, right? Exactly. In the world war of one term, but not in the state of cohabitation with a government which was on the other side. So in that sense, he won. A, it looks like victory, nevertheless. But as I said... He has huge challenges. And if you look at the polls of the voting on the voting day, you know, 40% of the people said they voted against Marine Le Pen and not for Emmanuel Macron. There was a huge abstentionist vote as well, you know, 28%, which is one of the, I think it's historically, it's a historic high for France for a presidential election, which is the queen of elections in France. 
you know, we have this tradition of a nearly kingly uh, president, you know, hmm. uh, which uh, because the constitution was uh, tailored for General de Gaulle, who understood, you know, that France was still a little bit of a monarchy. But it looks like our young king is, uh, in fact, quite fragile. And uh, what is interesting is that, in fact, a lot of people, you know, voted for him, but said they didn't like him. And they didn't really like, you know, the, the state of France that he left after five years. Of course, it's not at all all of his fault, and because the situation has been extremely difficult for him. He, he got the COVID crisis. He got... Uh, huge insurgency of Gilets Jaunes. He got the war in Ukraine. So it has been a, a lot on his plate and, and a chain of terrorist attacks against France as well. So, you know, the general feeling in France is very dark, very somber. And what is very interesting also is that there is no sign that he will have any moment to, for, for breathing, what we call état de grâce in France. Right. Moment will, of grace. Uh, and, Yes, a moment of grace that he will have immediately this sort of fierce fight, even for the parliamentary elections, which are ahead of us, you know, will be happening very soon in June. And, and you know, it's going to be a fierce fight. And you have the extreme left saying that they will win this fight. And, and you know, their leader, who is very extreme, will become prime minister. You have Macron, of course, the traditional right, which was beaten harshly trying to come back, and then you have this nationalist right trying to sort of also build up an opposition. So, so things are fragmented and very uh, unstable, actually, not very, we don't know what's going to happen. So before we kind of go into the segmentation and the fragmentation in the French political system, which I think is actually really interesting, especially given that, you know, France has a number of these different parties. It's a parliamentary system compared to America's two-party system. But before we get into that, I, I want to look at what was at stake in this second round. So from the point of view of the U.S. and from the point of view of much of the West, we were thinking about this election as kind of a referendum on France's role in the world. Right. I mean, Le Pen has threatened to take France out of the military structure of NATO. She has expressed sympathy for Vladimir Putin. In 2017, I believe she actually gave an interview where she said that she was a politician in the mold of Trump and Vladimir Putin. And so from the point of view of much of the Western world, in any case, I think people were looking at this election and thinking, which direction would France go? with respect to kind of global liberalism and yeah. certainly with respect to the war in Ukraine. So what was the conversation like within France? Is this something voters were thinking about or were they focused on other issues? Yeah, I, I would say that, you know, yes, of course, the French, you know, did take in large account these aspects that you're mentioning and describing. And I think there was a, you know, in the middle of this huge European war, this sort of absolutely unexpected uh, for many people, situation with Russia, the people were, you know, very afraid of Marine Le Pen coming to power because her alignment with Vladimir Putin was seen as something very, quite scary. And, you know, this sort of absolute, the fact that she was financed by a bank linked to the Kremlin, and that's something that Emmanuel Macron, you know, played extremely harshly during the debate with her, you know, calling uh, Putin her banker. And it was very difficult for her to sort of get out of this because she presents herself 
as you know the representative of the sovereign France, which is fully sovereign, and and here it was, you know, this sort of uh, you know big stain on what she wanted to put forward. And so yes, there was this element which was important, and her willingness to get out of NATO. But at the same time, one has to understand that I wouldn't say that the French are totally confident about Emmanuel Macron being this great leader in a time of war. That's how he painted himself, you know, the the leader above the fray, dealing with Putin and with the war and very busy helping unite Europe. But there are lots of doubts about that as well. You know, there were lots of doubts about his capacity also to understand what was going on with Putin because he was very optimistic, you know, the whole time, you know, leading this dialogue to an extent which somehow seemed a bit quite very much strange to many. And also, of course, the fact that a lot of people nevertheless were focused on other issues and and especially the people, you know, the small people, you know, people from peripheral France, you know, more disadvantaged socially who voted for Marine Le Pen, they didn't look so much, I would say, at this international situation and they voted for her because of economic issues. They were worried about, you know, if we go to war with Russia, what will happen with the price of gas, with our peaceful life, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how it played out. That's really interesting. I think in America, there exists a pretty significant contingent of voters, right? The America first voters who do think about America's role in the world and want to sort of pull back from that role. And therefore, that's an important component of their support for Donald Trump, for the MAGA movement. When you look at Le Pen voters, it almost sounds like what you're saying is that they are not kind of the France first voters of wanting to pull France back. They're voting for Le Pen for other reasons. Yes, absolutely. I don't think, you know, in France, you have this isolationist element that you indeed see very much in the U.S., I would say, you know, inside the right on the Trump side. I would say that in France, there is still this idea that France has to play a role. It's, it's very important to any voters, I would say, that France has to be influential, active in the world, but they understand that in different manners. So I would say that the people on the right, both the, the Marine Le Pen voters and, for instance, the voters that voted for Eric Zemmour, who was a, a nationalist, you know, who played a part during the beginning of the campaign, they see... France's role as very special. They don't want France to sort of getting blurred into and, and, you know, sort of drown into European politics and be uh, subdued by some kind of uh, Germany being stronger. So they would argue that France had to balance her interests. They are very much, you know, in this Gaullist approach as they understand it because the goal was much more subtle, actually. It was always you know, very much in line with the alliance during the big times of crisis. But they argued that they had to be like the goal in the sense of having a special relationship with Russia and with Putin. There was this attraction to Putin as a guy who, as they thought, would be in line with them in terms of, you know, fighting uh, Islamism, uh, fighting sort of what they saw as a decadence of values in the West, and being a strong man, all these elements 
you know, led to balance the idea of being inside NATO and always in line with the rest of Europe. They're very skeptical of the Europe that would be uh, totally united because they have, in fact, the feeling sometimes to a certain extent it's true. It's, of course, not in this time of today when we face Putin, but that, you know, the German interest is not the French interest and that we have to be more subtle in terms of organizing our relationship inside Europe. Mm -hmm. So let's dig in a little bit more into this Russian question. Obviously, on February 24th, Russia invaded Ukraine, which fundamentally changed the contours of the race. And in the past, you've written actually articles calling out the inability of French elites, French political elites, thinking effectively about the question of how to deal with Russian Putin. So I wonder if you can say first how the war change the contours of the race? And second, if you can expand a little bit about kind of what you mean when you say that the French political elites haven't been able to struggle with the question of Russia. Right. So I will start from, you know, the very moment, you know, when this crisis hit. I think that, you know, it had been going on for quite a few weeks with uh, this idea, is Russia going to invade, you know, and and the big debate inside and Macron, you know, willing to go to Moscow and try to convince Putin that he should not invade, that they should get some kind of compromise and change the architecture of security in Europe. That was the big idea of, of Macron, who on that particular moment was behaving as what he would like to frame as a realist. You know, the realist mm-hmm. who deals with Russia as it is, uh, very much influenced by Hubert Dedrin, you know, who is this former Minister of Foreign Affairs, who is very influential on the the definition of foreign affairs in France, foreign policy. And they would say, Russia exists, we have to deal with it, even if we don't like it, and we have to strike a deal and compromise. The idea that they should actually give some space to Putin and stop the enlargement of NATO, that we were actually responsible for what was going on, that we were aggressive and Russia was just defending Mm. uh, itself, etc., etc. And so that was the line of Macron before the war. And when it hit, he was just taken aback. And I think, you know, because at the very moment when he was coming back, more or less, and saying, I am negotiating and we'll get some kind of agreement, just this war sort of started. So he was just fooled, really, I would say, by the head of Russia, by Vladimir Putin, very bluntly. And and, uh, I think it was quite a problem for him. But I would say that at that point, the race was hit in a different way because the other candidates were so bad in the way they had, you know, uh, presented the whole relationship with Russia, especially Eric Zemmour, who was quite high at that moment. He was sort of a maverick character, a little bit of a Trump candidate, uh, sort of getting out of civil society, this journalist from actually Le Figaro, who appeared on the horizon at some point was 17%, creating a party from absolutely nothing and getting to 16, 15, 16, 17% of the vote. It was just, you know, like Mm. lightning in the middle of this race. And there was really a chance that he was competing with Marine Le Pen. They were about equal. And when the war hit, he was hit more because he was very ideological, very much lauding Putin as a sort of strong man that France would need, that Ukraine had to do with its geography, and that we shouldn't be basing our foreign policy on human rights, but we should on realistic uh, 
appreciation of balance of power. And so when it started, he couldn't change his compass. I mean, he, of course, he uh, condemned the invasion strongly, but he still said that it was our fault, that the guilt was shared, that we should still try to get some kind of compromise, etc., etc. So people didn't like it. They were not convinced. And then when he refused, he, thought, he said that it was not a good idea to take uh, refugees from Ukraine. I think people were outraged in many ways. And he lost a lot of his uh, support, especially in the, what uh, we call in France the patriotic bourgeoisie, you know, the, the people who were keen on voting for him because they were very worried about big issues of uh, Islamism, immigration, demographics, cultural you know, anxiety about the change of France and the loss of French values and culture, they shifted and they were horrified by this position and by Putin. And then Marine Le Pen was sort of a shrewder because she condemned, she was, I think, more empathetic, although she had this huge problem with her political alignment with Putin for many years. So she lost, but not so much, and she managed sort of, you know, she just shifted the conversation to internal issues, and she, she sort of continued her campaign, and she managed to make it to the second uh, round, as you know. And that's how it all sort of played out, actually. And then, you know, what you ask about, why are the French uh, have this sort of difficulty uh, with Russia? to sort of understand the Putin's politics, I think there are different reasons. You know, the, there is a really a historical pro-Russia stance in France, you know, because historically Russia came to our help several times, you know, in, in very difficult moments of our history against Germany, you know, and, um, mm-hmm. and we haven't forgotten. And I think that even General de Gaulle, when he uh, sort of dated that uh, France saw Russia as, uh, you know, emerging at some point from the uh, sort of mantle of of, uh, communism, saying that there was an internal Russia behind the Red Russia. He had in mind the First World War when the Russian army, the Samsonov offensive on the Eastern Front, saved France, in fact, during the First World War, because it gave us time to organize our defense against the Germans. So these are things which which are very deep, you know, in the, I would say, in the mental collective conscience of the nation. And, you know, on top of that, there is this very big problem with Islam in France that we, we, uh, we don't, uh, Islamism, uh, what will happen, and the French who are supporting Eric Zemmour or uh, Marine Le Pen, they, they thought that Russia would defend Christianity because Putin was extremely uh, skillful in uh, using or manipulating uh, actually all these far-right parties and nationalists and neo gaullists and telling them, I am your man, I will help you. These, you know, liberal democracies are so weak, they don't understand where is the big enemy. So he played on that extremely skillfully, although he himself, of course, uh, to a certain extent, has encouraged you know, Islamization of Chechnya and uh, yeah. he's relying on, on a guy uh, like Katyrov who, you know, sent his troops to support him in, in Ukraine uh, uh, by shouting Allah Akbar. So, so uh, of course, you know, the French don't know all that. They didn't know all that. 
And also he was skillful on saying that he's a big conservative, that he's defending Christianity, that, you know, he also appealed to the anti-Americanism of the French, which is, as you know, deeply rooted in France. There has always been a sort of competition, although we are the oldest friend of, of America, you know, and help them to gain their independence. I think, that, you know, the French seeing themselves as a big nation, a universal, uh, you know, player, always considered that, you know, the American culture was not uh, something they particularly enjoyed and there were many, you know, fields of competition, I would say. That's a really interesting, you know, because I've spent a lot of time in France, you know, and, and I've actually never really noticed that. I've never really thought about it. So when you say that there's kind of this anti-American trend among the French, I mean, is that primarily from the point of view of like cultural competition? Is it political? How would you describe it? Yes, I think it's in a way cultural and it's, you know, it's paradoxical because the French are fascinated by America at the same time. For instance, French journalism extremely active on the American uh, front. I was correspondent to, you know, to in Washington, and there was a huge interest. I, I did huge work, you know, very deep, lots of pages, lo- lots of. Uh, there was a lot of interest for America, but paradoxically, also this sort of, uh, you know, uh, nearly uh, visceral anti-Americanism, especially I would say on the right and on the communist left, you know, uh, ultra-left also, which is linked to more, you know, this sort of anti-capitalism stance of the French, you know, anti-capitalist. You know, there is very strong, as you know, you know, the, the intelligentsia Uriel in France for, for uh, decades was yes. uh, anti-capitalist and communist in many ways. So it, it has left an imprint so it's very complex, but it's incredibly, you know, lively. You know, I can see that in many ways. You know, when I write about, you know, uh, uh, Russia and, you know, I, I'm no fan of, uh, of the Putin uh, regime and, and, you know, I've always been extremely forceful in detailing, you know, the the, uh, the mechanism of this despotic and uh, uh, neo-totalitarian uh, mechanism of power in Russia, but I get a lot of comments in, in Le Figaro, which is a center-right newspaper, conservative, and they don't like that. They always say, but you haven't seen America. What about American imperialism? What about America? So it's always, you know, this idea oh. that France should balance, France should uh, be in between. Uh, this is what it is. Yeah, which is, of course, really interesting, right? Because, I mean, France uh, is one of the three biggest countries in Europe, the two biggest in in continental Europe, you know, a key ally of the U.S. Very Mm -hmm. key and very strong links between the military, you know, the the, the relationship between the American military army and and the French military is extremely good. It's very close. And actually, the military hated this idea of getting out of NATO, I can tell you. Although quite a few military people voted, I think, for Marine Le Pen. But here, you know, it's more this sort of uh, fear of the dilution of the nation. You know, there is a, the French are uh, very worried about serious issues, I think, of the undoing of the French common thread. They feel that this country is in a state of crisis, that it's becoming like an archipelago 
think we discussed that you know, before the <laughs> yeah. show, and uh, and and in you know many, I would say uh, French patriots are voting on on the right or ultra right because of that. Before we actually get back to the political side, which I think is really interesting because I do want to compare a little bit the political dynamics in France versus the U.S., but you know, while we're thinking about the military connections, a few months ago, I think back in September, October, there was you know a huge crisis in relations around the AUKUS deal, right? So this was yeah. the deal between the U.K., the U.S., and Australia in, to sell nuclear submarines to Australia, thereby kind of supplanting the previous deal that existed between France and Australia, you know, that was kind of a difficult thing for me to think about. You know, it represented this pretty significant break between four countries, all of whom are sort of, you know, liberal democracies, free countries, standing in the face of what essentially amounts to the rise of authoritarianism led by Russia and China. I wonder if you could say a bit more about what happened with the deal. Why did it represent sort of this crisis? And where have we gone since then? Yes, indeed, it was a, a very difficult moment in the bilateral relation, and not only between the Americans and the, and the French, but also between the French and the British, which the British were involved in this story, and the Australians, because the French had secured a huge deal with the Australians on providing you know, submarines to the Australians, and the deal was pretty last minute. It was torn apart, you know, under the pressure of the British and the Americans, who behaved incredibly rudely, I would say, <laughs> to say the <laughs> least, in the, in the way they dealt with one of their, you know, closest allies, sort of, uh, you know, circumventing the French and not taking any gloves to, you know, to help them swallow this pill. So it was, you know, very uh, unpleasant to see a coming administration, Biden administration, which had, you know, rhetorically uh, repeated on and on during the the campaign that, you know, here was uh, America coming back and and, and was going to be with allies and, uh, you know, uh, putting cooperation at the heart of its foreign policy and starting actually with such a, you know, rough gesture, diplomatic gesture uh, towards the French. So then they argued that, you know, it was a a question of, it was a commercial issue that, uh, in fact, the Australians had favored uh, industrial, industrially, you know, the the other projects. But I think it's, it's actually much more because behind this industrial deal, there was the whole building up of the new American posture in the Pacific, towards uh, China and clearly no real willingness to include, you know, the French, although the French had, you know, put forward their very pretty strong positioning in the Pacific as the Pacific power, because you know we are actually quite a big Pacific power because we have a huge, you know, sea zone in the Pacific because of all the islands, the French islands over there. So, I mean, there was a lot of tension. The Americans on their side, what I can understand is that they didn't like the fact that the French inside the EU, uh, together with the Germans, were trying to position Europe a bit differently 
uh, towards China than the alignment, the total alignment that the Americans wanted. And I think this actually sums up, you know, actually real disagreements about how things should be organized in the future, because, you know, the Americans really see the situation now as you frame actually your podcast as an alignment on the one side, all the democracies and uh, all the despotic regimes, uh, China, Russia, etc., on the other side. And I think that Europe wants to keep some kind of uh, space for maneuver. So there are actually very structural, I think, tensions around that. And also because of economic competition of defense industry which is a very touchy subject, as you know. Right. So my own sense of it was that this was kind of a mix of two things, that as you pointed out, the China issue where the US, the UK, and Australia wanted to take a stronger stand, and they sort of saw that division more starkly versus, you know, France and Germany, and, you know, who kind of saw Europe's role as a little bit more nuanced, right? Like they did not want to take as strong a stand necessarily against the Chinese as the US, UK, and Australia did. And so that was one of the things motivating the deal. And as for sort of the extent to which the French were blindsided, that struck me as just kind of a sheer competence failure, right? A sheer diplomatic failure on the part of the Americans. I was very shocked, you know, especially after all the rhetoric that we had heard but at the same time, I must tell you, Riel, that's one of the things which maybe explain also this sort of uh, long-term tensions, which sort of go back and forth. Although, you know, the I think the fundamentals of this relationship are strong historically, and, and it's no coincidence that we organized this conference in Tuxil. There were many links, you know, they are still very strong. But still, I can tell you as a correspondent, for instance, for us, it, it was, for me, for instance, was always a surprise the way, for instance, the um, America is is a world of its own and is actually pretty introvert in terms mm-hmm. of its uh, its functioning, even of this huge machinery of foreign policy. The way, for instance, the White House under all uh, different presidents, actually, be it you know the Republicans or. Obama administration, which I, of course, experienced for eight years as well, is that for them, the European press practically doesn't exist. It's a very insular world, actually. What do you mean when you say that for them, Europe doesn't really exist? Well, I I can give you an example. I don't remember what was the reason. There was some kind of tension, as far as I remember, between Obama and Europe, you know, because the Europeans, you know, had, you just saw him as an icon at the beginning and they just loved him and supported him, etc. And then he sort of turned, you know, and made pretty clear that he was not particularly interested in European affairs, that he was going to be much more, you know, pivoting to Asia, mm. withdrawing, etc. Et and at some, I don't remember exactly what was the sort of bone of contention? But at some point, you could see that, you know, a lot of European leaders were, you know, becoming totally, I would say, uh, disillusioned with Obama. And he had bad relations with pretty much all the presidents at a certain point. And I remember, you know, in one of my framing, one of my requests for interview that we tried, you know, to get uh, with Obama, 
telling one of the big guys, you know, in foreign policy at the time in the White House, that to look at this series of articles I'm sending you about the way he's perceived, maybe he should sort of, uh, you know, uh, outreach to uh, the European press, etc., etc. And he sent me back a, <laughs> a mail and he just said, do you think we care? Wait, this was from, oh, wait, hold on. This was from the, you, you got a note, do, do you think we care from a representative of the White House? Yes, a very high level representative of the White House saying, Lord, do you think we care? Point interrogation, question mark. So wow. You know, I'm, I'm revealing a little frustration. I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's not so important, but it, I think it's quite significant of if you, if you would poll actually the, um, I think the European uh, correspondents, uh, you know, in Washington, they rarely, it's not easy for us to sort of, you have to get around. I mean, you, with time you, you get in your network, etc. But I would say that it's quite interesting. It, it's significant, this relationship. And I think when you talk to French diplomats, and you, you have to not forget that the French think of themselves, despite you know their weaker position now in the world, as a big nation and uh, influential, important. You know, and sometimes they have the feeling that they are being taken not seriously. Wow. <laughs> or, <laughs> yes. That's I. I so, you know I. <laughs> Actually, struggling to respond to that—that's so hard to believe that that someone from the White House would send that that kind of note. But thinking about sort of this Franco-American dynamic is really interesting. And so, if we take a little bit of a step back and look at the respective domestic politics of the two countries over the past five six years, there has been this incredible realignment in France, right, where you've essentially seen the absolute collapse of the traditional left and the traditional right. And instead, you've seen the rise of new parties, you've seen the rise of previous fringe parties. So from the far left, you've got Jean-Luc Mélenchon of sort of the communist party. You've got what's left of the traditional left, which is to say not very much in the Parti Socialiste. Then you have Macron's party, En Marche, which has basically supplanted both the traditional center-left as well as the traditional center-right. And then, you know, the remains of the traditional center-right took the form of Les Républicains under Pécresse. And then you have what's now called Rassemblement, previously known as Front National, under Marine Le Pen. And, you know, of course, even further to the right, if that were possible, is Eric Zemmour. My understanding is different. I don't think he's further to the right. I think he's he's actually sort of... I would say what we call that droite nationale. I would say he's tougher on the issue of Islam, mm-hmm. uh, but I will explain if you want to uh, exactly, you know, how what is the the question here. But it, he's tough on immigration, very tough on immigration, on Islamism, and on Islam. Because I mean, I will tell you why. So we can quickly go into that. And then I do want to compare the political systems of the two countries a little bit, because in the U.S. also, you've seen this incredible realignment of political base. But because we have a two-party system, the parties have remained roughly the same, but it's the coalitions that underpin those parties that have really fundamentally changed. And, you know, I, I do want to explore some of the forces at play in both of those. But before we get to that, you know, to dig in briefly to Zemmour, I mean, you know, within France, Zemmour has been charged with, you know, incitement to violence, racism, like all of these, you know, pretty 
terrible things. And certainly I, I can tell you that in the American press, as a, you know, which I'm sure won't surprise you at all, he's been portrayed not just as a Trumpian candidate, but, you know, kind of like a Trump on steroids almost. Tell us a little bit about kind of how you view the candidacy of Zamor. You know, personally, I must tell you that uh, I didn't agree with the coverage of Trump during 2016 in America and neither uh, Zemmour in France. For me, uh, the American press has uh, sort of shifted very much to the left and is seeing these, I think, uh, what is going on in a very caricatural way, which is, for me, a very big problem for America and for France also, because it makes such a caricature of what is going on that it prevents, I think, uh, of looking at the phenomenon behind the men, the men that are be- becoming, you know, sort of flagship of uh, of these movements, of these uh, uh, phenomenons, which are rebellions, actually, for me. They are very similar because they are rebellions, they are nationalist rebellions against globalization and the consequences of globalization. They're both, you know, uh, rebellions against mass immigration and free trade driven to such an extent that it sort of becomes a factor of deindustrialization or not sufficient protectionism of the um, working class or the middle class sort of I think there is a big element here linked with these two elements. And also, in both cases, there is a conservative rebellion against, you know, the new ideology of the, of the liberal elites, which gone very far to the left. And by going so far, they actually, you know, lost a significant part of the working class and the middle class, which used to be on the left, you know, in the mm-hmm. Democratic Party and in France on the left, because the left in France and in the U.S. became, uh, you know, replaced actually the former damned de la terre, you know, the damned of the earth, uh, were the working class. And now it's the immigrants and the minorities, more generally, you know, both ethnic, ethnic sexual, etc. And it's, same, it's exactly the same here. And so the working class has been somehow abandoned by these parties, or at least feels it has, and they turn to populists. And these populists emerge on the right, not only because we are going to talk, as you see, you, you mentioned Mélenchon in front, it's both the left and the right, populist left and populist right, and they just sort of emerge and, you know, sort of thrive on the abandonment of these huge segments of the population by the traditional parties, the traditional left. And what is interesting, you know, about Zemmour is that I think that in France, it's, there is something which is different, although there is the immigration issue, the minorities issue, and it's true that Trump also sort of appealed to the Christian, you know, values and somehow, you know, said he would be a, a defender against Islamism and Islamic radicalism. And he mentioned these themes because when he was running in 2016, there were some terrorist attacks, you know, uh, uh, Islamists in America. But nevertheless, it's a very different issue in France. The question of the rise of significant Muslim minorities in France has created what I, uh, an anxiety about, you know, the capacity of the republic 
to embrace both these minorities and save the secular foundations of the country and also, you know, the potential clash with Christianity, not because of this clash is necessary, but because there were attacks, you know, on, uh, by Islamists, on uh, priests, uh, on Although- churches. There's a certain irony there, though, in the sense that both Zamor and Trump are these incredibly flawed figures. I mean, you know, certainly I've made no secret of my thoughts on them. But, you know, Zamor very famously had an affair with a staffer in her 20s, yeah, whom he ultimately impregnated. And, and at least the rumors that I've heard are that he himself was the one who leaked this information because he believed that there were, you know, elements of the public who would as a result, view him as more virile and, you know, versus the childless Macron. Meanwhile, Trump, of course, very famously has had countless affairs and including with, you know, Stormy Daniels, a, a porn star. And, and yet both of these candidates portrayed themselves as defenders of Christianity. And I mean, this is something I've always struggled with in the U.S., certainly how, how people could see Trump that way. And, you know, I wonder in, in France, is it possible for folks to reasonably see Zemmour as a defender of Christianity, despite what amount to these pretty fundamental character flaws? You know, I, I think it's absolutely, and it's the same in the U.S., but it's not, I mean, the situation is different because I think, you know, the big difference is that in America, Christianity means very different things. You have still in America a, a very significant number of, of Americans who believe in God and practice their religion very actively, go to church. You have about you know, 50 or 60% of the people who still go to church in America, which is enormous you know, a percentage. So it's still a very, I would say, very vibrant Christian country, even if it is in the process of uh, de-Christianization. In France, it's very different. You know, we were, there was a secularization after the French Revolution throughout the 19th century, which was very fierce, extremely, I would say nearly very brutal. And it ended up, you know, with this sort of loi, uh, uh, Concordat, you know, in mm-hmm. 1905. And, which sort of pacified the relationship between the state, which was very anti-Christian, and the church. They sort of came to a compromise. But now, you know, the French churchgoers, it's about 7%. It's nothing. It's very small. So, so it's different. But the French still have a... Francis was the elder sister of the church, so it's absolutely a whole culture is bathed in Christianity. We come out of Christianity. So we, it's still very, very vibrant in terms of our culture. And so it's, it's, people still attach a lot of uh, importance. And the fact that you could have, you know, terrorist attack in a church against the priest, even for a person who is not Christian, in France, it's a huge, it's a blow. It's a very deep blow. And I, and I think this goes beyond, you know, so the French, they are not particularly mindful of, you know, the morals of the politicians. As you know, we have this tradition of accepting that, you know, maybe it comes from our, also our Catholic roots, uh, which are, that we, we believe that the peoples are flawed for definition, you know, and that, uh, that we're all sinners. And so the French are, they're not as puritanical as the Americans in that respect. But mm-hmm. even, so for them, it's, it's not necessarily because he's a sinner uh, that he is not able to be a, 
the defender because it's about you know his willingness to be the guy who sort of holds the flag in a way. Right. And for Trump, I think it it was the same thing. They all knew that he was totally flawed. He had all these shortcomings, but they believed that he was willing to go against the fray against. This idea that, you know, under Obama, you couldn't say the world, even the radical Islam, because it was supposed to be politically incorrect. I think in both cases, what is very important, I think there is a cathartic element in the support for the war for Trump. They are both people who just come out of the outside political landscape, but which voice sort of breaks the political correctness on certain issues which were becoming forbidden. And I think it's very true in America, you know, that the Trump phenomenon, I, for instance, I thought Trump could win in 2016, unlike many American journalists, because I felt, you know, while traveling, that there was this element that the people were happy to see someone say some things that they believed were true and that they were not allowed to say. Right. Before closing... I know that making predictions is dangerous, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. The election's over. Macron is back as president for his second term. But as you pointed out, he has no moment of grace. The French people are frustrated. And, you know, as you said, that they didn't so much vote for him as they voted against Le Pen. So with that in mind, what do you think France's role is going to be over the course of the next five years on the global stage where you do appear in any case to have these resurgent authoritarian nations like Russia, while at the same time you have a free world that at least to many people appears to be in retreat. What do you think France's role is going to be in that over the course of the next five years? Indeed, you know, this situation is is complicated because I, I really think that Putin's decision to invade Ukraine is absolutely linked to his evaluation of the weakness of the West and that he believed, wrongly so, uh, fortunately, that the West was so weak, so fragmented, so actually decadent that the West wouldn't be able to gather its force and uh, organize a resolute response to this war and uh, organize a resolute support to Ukraine. So I think that, you know, this weakness is indeed a very important problem. And one of the questions for Macron will be indeed to what extent he will be able to play this part, uh, given the fact that the situation in France is very volatile, very fragile economically, too. He's given away during COVID and recently many social gifts to the French people. And so he sort of bought out some uh, social peace, but... How long could he do that? You know, are the interest rates going to go up and how strong is going to be our economy in this context? Are we going to be, you know, held back by the debts, for instance? Mm. All of that has to be taken into account. But at the same time, Macron wants to play a part. He wants to play a part in this huge game that uh, that is in front of us, this huge challenge, of course, First of all, of the war of Ukraine, how are we going to play it out? He wants to be one of the unifiers of Europe. It's not easy because, you know, despite the unified response at the beginning, we see now a lot of uh, disagreements uh, reappearing, you know, between the different players. And one has to say that, you know, the French and the Germans, for many years, they underestimated the opinions of the Poles and Bolts who were 
right, actually, as we see now in their evaluation of the danger of uh, Putin's regime. And so we should listen to them more, I believe, you know, and we will see how all this uh, plays out. I think the French still want, uh, Macron still wants to play this sort of card of the European defense. I personally think it's a bit of a ghost for now. It doesn't mean that it is forever, but my understanding is that there is too much of an absolutization, both on the nationalist part of France, Marine Le Pen, Zemmour, uh, etc. They are ridiculously against Europe and saying everything is happening on the you know, level of the nation. I think it's both levels have to play out. You know, all the nations of Europe have to rearm themselves. And it should not only happen creating a common defense, but it should happen in each country as well. And I think, you know, try to oppose these two approaches is ridiculous and actually a lot of time. And I think that the Europeans have to rearm because can you imagine, uh, Uriel, that in 1990, uh, when just after the Berlin Wall fell, we were quite actually in good position in terms of our military and mm-hmm. we lost an enormous amount of our military capacity. We reduced the number of our troops, the equipment. For instance, the Germans, it became like a joke. The Germans, they lost 90% of their military capacity since 1990. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely incredible. So I think the Ukrainian crisis tells us that we cannot continue to depend on the umbrella of the Americans, that we have to build up our capacities to face war and to be... uh, key actors of uh, the security of Europe in the future. Well, if one consequence of this is going to be a more powerful Europe, a more well-armed Europe, a Europe that can play a much greater role in its own security, certainly that would be one hell of a silver lining. It's going to be the challenge. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for joining me today. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Winter is Here, brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative and Substack. I'm your host. Uriel Epstein. At RDI, we are committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player at renewdemocracy.substack.com and share the episode with a friend. Or become an RDI subscriber at rdi.org. Thanks again. Thank you.